As we've seen, we've built uh, hopefully a case that the the Bible is God's Word and is demonstratively so. It's objectively credible. And in that Word, we see that there's this great struggle between, as we talked about, Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. And though God is a God of love, there is an enemy who has smeared that picture and has deceived, as the Bible says, the whole world and led each one of us into this problem. So now we find ourselves in a problem. Our iniquities have separated us. Our sins have removed us from that relationship with God, and the wage of sin is death. So we have a problem that the Lord wants to solve through his, both his pardon and his power, which is what we're looking at this evening, pardon and power. But before we get started in tonight's study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of coming here and studying your word. Thank you for giving us a word to study. You didn't have to communicate your will to us, but you are God who wants a relationship with us. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, help us to never take that for granted. Help us to never lose sight of the significance of that. And tonight as we explore it deeper, help us to understand our significance and help us to see that you love us so much that you gave your only son And the choice of salvation is ours. You've already chosen us. The question is, are we going to choose you in return? So, Lord, guide our minds tonight, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please open your Bibles to page 1016. That is Luke chapter 19. Now, we focused the previous evenings on the primary mission of Jesus Christ when he was here was to end the war that started in heaven. Again, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon, instead of being blotted out of existence, was cast out to the earth. And Jesus said that the purpose of him coming was to end that war, to destroy the devil, the works of the devil. But obviously, there's more to it than simply the fight with Satan and ending that and revealing the character of God. Apparently, there's another thing, uh, something particularly important to us. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus says it very simply. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not simply to destroy that which rebelled, but to save that which was lost. So this brings us to our first little set of fill-in-the-blanks. More than destruction. Jesus' mission involved more than revealing the contrast between the character of God and the character of Satan, which, as we talked about last night, Jesus' sacrifice on Calvary showed for the very first time that the onlooking universe, the character of God as a love, a God of love, a giver of himself, and where Satan is the exact opposite of that, where he's a taker for himself. Satan's not offering us freedom. What he offers is sin and death and destruction, and Christ offers us life. You know, the character of Christ and Satan was fully contrasted at the cross, but now the question could be, because we could ask the question, if God knew that Satan was going to do his rebellion, shouldn't he just killed him the minute he rebelled? Well, we looked at that, that that wouldn't actually work. It would kill Satan but it wouldn't kill rebellion itself, right? Because everybody else was saying, well, what happened? I don't understand. How did it happen? And then all of a sudden, instead of being punished for his sins, he would become a martyr for the cause of freedom. And other people say, he must have been onto something. Let's see what the... So he has to let it run its course. He casts him out, and then he sends his son Jesus to reveal his character 
which Satan has smeared through his trafficking and trading and merchandise, if you will, slander, tail-bearing. And so now, the universe has seen, aha, Jesus really is a representative of the Father, and the Father really is love. And Satan, for all of his claims of enlightened new government and new ideas and freedom for all, is a liar and a murderer just like Jesus said he was. If he had the opportunity, he would take the very life of God if it were put, and it's exactly what he did, right? So you could make an argument then, all right, now that Jesus Christ has demonstrated this character of God and Satan's mask has been unveiled, he is exactly the murderer Christ has said he was, why didn't God execute judgment on Satan right then when Jesus died on the cross? Say, you are a murderer. You've exposed yourself. That's what was in your heart all along. And the onlooking universe would say, yes, he deserves to die. So why didn't he? Why did he not just destroy Satan right then and there? I understand now why not at heaven, but why not at the cross when he was fully revealed as a murderer? Well, because of this very simple premise. God's plan involved more than the, involved the saving of sinners, not just the destruction of Satan. Okay, now this is a big distinction. Satan's doom was sealed when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says he knows that his time is short. He knows it's game over. He lost. However, there's something more to God's plan. It's, notice, it's called the plan of salvation, not the plan of destruction. If it was merely the plan of destruction, right then and there, when Jesus died, Satan could have died too and say, aha, you get the justice you have coming to you. And Satan and all of his followers, every sinner that ever was, sin itself would be wiped out of the universe. But God's plan is more than merely the destruction of Satan. It involves the redemption of the lost. He wants to actually save sinners, not just destroy sin. So this is a bigger thing. And praise the Lord, we're under that umbrella. We fall under the okay, now what do we do category, right? God's plan involved the saving of sinners, not merely the destruction of Satan. So, a pastor that I was uh, uh, working with at one point, an, an older gentleman, a wiser gentleman than myself, I'll give you that, explained to me one time, you can't just preach salvation. You can't just tell people they're saved, they're saved, they're saved. And I said, well, why not? He's like, here's the thing. You gotta get them lost first. Right? Think about this. Before you can get them saved, you gotta get them lost. Now, that doesn't mean you make people lost, but most people don't have a, a clue what you're being saved from. For instance, you go to an atheist, an agnostic, someone who has no interest in the Bible whatsoever, and say, Friend, Jesus saves. Saves what? What's my problem? You know, or you say, here's the cure. You're like, well, what was the disease? I didn't know anything was wrong. Before you can give people the hope of what's a good thing, you've got to understand the problem up there and to start with. Thus, you've got to get them lost before you get them saved. And what I want to show you tonight is, friends, we're lost. But Jesus saves. Okay? The goal tonight is to show that, we're, A, we're lost, and without Jesus, we have no hope. But with Jesus, we do have hope. Okay? That's a very clear distinction. And we have two basic problems. Our past and our future. <laughs> everything in our past and everything in our future is the only two problems we have, but those are pretty significant problems. Let's take a look at them. Page 547, Isaiah chapter 59. 
Isaiah chapter 59. We've read this text before, but let's look at it again in the light of our problem here with the Lord. Isaiah chapter 59, starting verses one, starting with verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Praise the Lord for that. Nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. So the Lord wants to save. His hand can do it, but he's not going to force anything on us, right? Verse 2. But your iniquities, and what's another word for iniquity? Sin has separated you from your God. Apparently, sin separates from God, who is sinless, right? Sin, your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The issue is that he, it's not that he can't hear, but, and he can't see face to face. He could show up right now. But that would be death to us, right? We have separated ourselves from God by our sin, our transgression, our rebellion. That, of course, we got from Satan... He led us into it, but we bought into it, and now we're participants in his rebellion. So we've separated ourselves from him. Let's go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, page 1088. Romans chapter 5, page 1088. This is just a basic sermon on salvation and what it actually means to be saved. Romans chapter 5, we're going to go to verse 12. Again, that sin problem is what separates us from God, and Paul picks that up here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, of course, that's what we're talking about, Adam, he began this problem and leashed it into our humanity here, and death through sin, because the wages of sin is death, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? It spread to all of us because we've all participated in that. Every one of us has. Now, this is an issue. Adam takes on the rebellion that Satan offered up. Voluntarily, by the way. I mean, at least you could say, well, Eve started it. Well, that's true. But the Bible makes it clear that she was deceived and Adam was not. You look at the biblical record. She had to be talked into it. Adam just comes along and is like, oh yeah, okay. Right? And I don't, mean that, I don't mean that as flippantly as it sounds, but think about it. She had to be step by step, walk the, the serpent had to talk her into it, and finally she's like, all right, I'll buy into it. I want this wisdom. Adam doesn't have a confrontation with the serpent. He just has his wife come up and say, here, take this. He's not beguiled. He's not deceived. He simply sees her saying, eat the fruit, and weighs that against God saying, don't eat the fruit. Thus, you go to Genesis 3.17. This is all parenthetical, but I'm just giving you some extra credit tonight, okay? When you go to Genesis 3.17, when God comes and confronts Adam with what he has done, he doesn't say, because you ate of the tree. He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat from. He's like, very clearly, she presented you with option A, eat the fruit, and I presented you with option B, don't eat the fruit, and you listened to her over me. You joined in that rebellion. You did what you wanted to do without any deception. You just did it. And thus, that idea that I'm just going to voluntarily join into this deception spread to all humanity. We have this bent towards this, and all of us have participated. Every one of us knows that we've done something we shouldn't have done it. And we knew when we were doing it was wrong, and we did it anyway. That's the spirit of rebellion. You know what you're doing, and you just do it. This is why we have this problem. Back up just a couple passages here. 
from Romans 5, go back to Romans 3. Should be just one page back. Page 320, I mean, chapter 3, verse 23. Notice what it says here. For all have what? How many have sinned? All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And of course, what was the glory of God that we talked about the other night? The glory of God is his character, who he is. All those things that God describes, that self-sacrificing, beautiful, lovely, merciful, yet just God, all of us aren't that because we've sinned. We've come short of the glory of God. We've participated in the rebellion of Satan. Let's flip quickly back to Isaiah, page 721. I'm not sure that that's correct. Isaiah chapter 64. I'm not exactly sure of the page number of that one. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. And I want you to notice what this text says very carefully. Again, picking up where Paul talked about, we're all sinners. We've all come short. We've all participated in the rebellion. Notice what it says now. Our condition is as bad as it is. But we are all, there it is, like an unclean thing. And all, all our righteousness, all our righteousnesses, if you can, are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. I mean, both the Old Testament and New Testament paint this picture that every single one of us has participated in the rebellion of Satan. We've all bought into his lies, and every one of us has joined in. And notice what the text says. It doesn't say that all of our unrighteousness is as filthy rags. Notice again, what does the text say? All of our righteousness. You know, you often hear the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Think about the premise of the question. There are some people who are good and nothing bad should happen to them because they're inherently good. No, you're not. You might not be as bad as that other guy, but compared to the glory of God, the original estate in which we were formed, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is lost. The problem is sometimes we compare ourselves to other people instead of comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and we think, hey, at least I'm not doing that. I'm pretty good. Good is a relative term, right? Being compared to other people, of course you're going to look pretty good. You're going to find somebody worse, but you compare yourself to the standard of Christ and God, his law, his perfection. And my friends, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing good about us from the inside and out. We've got a big problem, and that's what I'm saying. Sometimes you've got to get them lost. We think, well, I, should, I, should be, I, I deserve some heaven. I'm pretty good. No, you don't. I mean, can we just talk like people here? We've all sinned very clearly. Let's go back to the book of Romans one more time now. Romans chapter 6. In verse 23, page 1089, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 spells it out explicitly. For the wages of sin is what? Death. So all of us have sinned, and death brings, is the result of sin. So all of us deserve, according to God's law, to die. Okay? We're all on death row. Let's be very clear about that. But I'm so glad, by the way, the text doesn't end there. The wages of sin is death. Too bad. Right? But, comma, but... The gift of God, notice, not, notice it's the wages of sin. You 
When you go to a job, when they give you your paycheck, you don't say, oh, thank you, Mr. Boss, for that nice gift. Why did you get that money? Because you worked, you earned it, you did a thing, and that's what you got for the thing you did, right? But that's not how you act as a gift. If you act that way with a gift, Christmas time comes around, somebody gives you a nice gift, you're like, yeah, that's right, it's my gift, better give it to me. No, 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 you didn't do anything. It's a gift, it's generosity, it's coming from them to you, that's it, right? And notice the transition here. The wages of sin, that's something you earn, is death. But on the flip side, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So apparently we have earned for ourselves a death sentence, but God has given us the opportunity for life. How in the world does he do this? Does the Lord just simply say, look, I know you're sinners, but I just love you so much, come on up. No. And by the way, if that were the case, Satan would have some legitimate grounds to say, hey, 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 why not let me back in too? If all you're doing is giving a free pass for sinners, I'm one. Right? So what's going on here? What's going on here? How does the Lord do this? Let's go to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. You see, this gift of God actually presents a, almost a dilemma. How do you handle the sin problem? I believe it's page 919 in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 3. We see a, a, a lived out or written down, at least, parable of how this process works. How does God deal with the problem of saving sinners? Chapter 3 and verse 1 of Zechariah. Zechariah is given a vision and it says, And then he showed me Joshua the high priest. And you have to understand, in the Israelite economy, in, their, in the Hebrew mind, the most holy person in all of the camp, and all of the nation, was the high priest. Right? He was the only one who could go into the most holy place. He made intercession for people. This is the, this is the symbol, the embodiment of all that is good. Okay? Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Okay, so you have, the picture is very clear. You have Joshua, the high priest. And you have the angel of the Lord, who he's standing before. And at his right side is Satan. And what's he doing there? What's his purpose there? To accuse him, to oppose him, to go against him. And the hymn is not Christ. The hymn is Joshua the high priest. He's opposing him. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, By the way, this is a good little proof text to show that, this is, that the angel of the Lord is Michael the archangel, Jesus Christ. Because he knew this is the same phrasing that we saw in Jude 9, earlier in our question and answer session. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So notice, Joshua is standing there, hasn't said a word yet. Satan is standing there next to him to accuse him or to oppose him, to stand against him. So here's the most righteous being on the earth, symbolically, and there's Jesus, he's standing before, as if he's being evaluated, being judged, and Satan's right next to him saying, hey, 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 hey. This guy's a sinner. I know everything that he's done. In fact, I've caused everything. I've, I've been right there for it. You cannot accept this man. He is a sinner, as all of them are. 
and he deserves to die, as your law says. Now, what are you going to do about it? Again, this is extending that idea that God is on trial. What are you going to do about this problem, God? And I love the Lord's answer. The Lord rebuke you. And how does he do this? Watch this now. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, speaking of the high priest, not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, a brand sitting in a fire doesn't pluck itself, right? It takes an outside someone to come in and take it, snatch it out. Now, verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. What had Isaiah already said? Used that idea of filthy garments as a representation of our righteousness, right? The best we can be in the sight of God and compared to the character of Christ is is, is filthiness. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. What do the filthy garments represent? His sin, his iniquity, his transgressions. I have taken those away. I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So there's a great exchange. I'm going to take your garments of filth, and in the place of them, I'm going to put rich robes on you. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to start you from scratch. I'm going to take the filth away and put clean on you. Mm. Now, this is a powerful thought. Satan's basic argument, as we go back to our worksheet now, Satan's basic argument is this. They've all sinned, and your law says the wages of sin is death. This one should die. And God could not simply say, no, don't worry about it. I'm just going to wink, nod, and ignore it. Because then Satan would say, are you going to do the same for me then? God couldn't ignore our sin. Sin had to be dealt with just as God's law required, with death. But notice what God wants to do. He wants to separate the sinner from the sin. While sin exists, what the result of sin is, is the separation of the sinner from God. So while sin separates people from God, God separates sin from people, right? His goal is, though, we've come together under sin. He wants to take that apart and take away the sin and keep the sinner, right? You know, it's interesting. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. In our depraved mind, we love the sin and we hate the sinner, right? We flip that around. We get that from Satan. He loves the sin and he hates the people, right? But God loves the people and he hates the sin. So he said, I'm going to try to salvage the person, but I'm going to take away their sin, their filth, their transgressions. So, the Lord just takes off that robe and throws it on the ground, right? Those filthy garments. No. Because that would be the same thing as just taking away free of charge and just throwing a trap. You can't do it. All right, so the sin and the guilt is not going to be on you, but the law still has to be satisfied. Something has to die. So what does he do with those filthy garments? As we go to the book of Isaiah, page 710. Isaiah chapter 53. Back to the left, several books. Isaiah chapter 53, starting with verse 4. A prophecy about the coming of Jesus. 
And notice what it says here. Surely he, that is Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, as though the Lord laid something horrible on him. Well, yes, but what was that something horrible that was put on Christ? Our sin. Watch this, verse 5 says it very clearly. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. What does God do with that robe of filthiness? He doesn't just leave it clumped on the floor or just make it poof, disappear. No, no, no. He puts it on his own son, Jesus Christ, and lays on him the iniquity of us all. In fact, watch this as it continues. It describes the, the trial and execution of Jesus to the, to the letter here. Verse 6, all we, notice the same thing as Romans, the same thing as the Old Testament scripture, all we like sheep have what? Gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember, he says, see, I've taken away your iniquity, but what does he do with it? He puts it on to Jesus Christ. I've laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 continues, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Now that's a strange text. This is his own son. And it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Is that because the Lord likes seeing people bruised? Of course not. He understands that what will come about because of this sacrifice will be the redemption of the lost. And that's what pleases him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, his days... He shall prolong his days. Of course, he's going to be resurrected and live forever. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It's a powerful thought. But that robe of unrighteousness was laid upon Jesus Christ, who himself was the personification, the embodiment of righteousness. So what happens to us? Now that Christ has taken the old away, remember back to Zechariah chapter 3, and he puts clean garments on us. He gives us a clean start. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, page 1114. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Very clearly, shows us this transition in life from the time we were robed in our own iniquity to the time that we've been clothed with Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is an improved creation. Is that what it says? No, no, no. 
Christ didn't come here to tweak and to modify and improve just a little bit and make you a little bit touch better. It says he is a new creation. And just to underline how new you are, old things have what? Passed away. That's a nice kosher term we use when someone has what? Died. Right? The old stuff is dead. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right? And skip down to verse 21. Why is this possible? For he who made him who knew no sin, which of course is a reference to Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. Very clear. The Bible is replete with this theme that Jesus takes upon himself our sin, our transgression, our iniquity, our guilt, and on his shoulders, who himself was sinless, he died as the sinner, though he himself had committed no sin. For me, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. For what purpose? That we might become, what? The righteousness of God in him. Notice that the goal is not just to have Jesus take away our sin, but us to be actually become righteous. We're going to come to this in a minute, but keep that in mind. Of course, probably the most famous chapter, uh, passage in all of Scripture is John chapter 3 and verse 16, page 1027 in your pew Bible. If you've never seen this text before, I hope you love it tonight. John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Think about that with Romans. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Here Jesus is on the cross, or at least looking forward to him being on the cross. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. By the way, Isaiah chapter 1. Returning to a theme that we started talking about on night number 1, Isaiah chapter 1, page 654, and verse 18. Apparently the Lord wants us to think about this transition. The death to the old self and the life in the new, the sacrifice of Christ and Him taking our iniquities and thus we getting to be clean and have a fresh start in Him. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now and let us do what? Reason to... What's another word for reason? Think. Consider. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And what are we supposed to think about? This very thing we've been talking about tonight. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be as wool. Mm. And notice that notice the, we always read that passage, but notice the next two verses. If you are what? Willing. Is God going to force his righteousness on you? No. This great controversy, remember, he wages, he lets the whole thing play itself out so we can make a decision. You can't win by force when you have free moral agents who are built to choose. I've heard someone say it this way, and I really like it. For God to win the great controversy by force would be for God to lose the great controversy. 
You cannot win it by compelling people. You can only draw them and invite them. He says, if you are willing and obedient. Notice this, willing and obedient. Not just like, sure, I'll take it free of charge. Great. That's, what, that's the difference between free grace and cheap grace. Right? He offers it to us free, but it was very, very expensive. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So basically he's saying, I'm giving you an option to start fresh. You can choose to keep going in your stubborn, rebellious, sinful ways. That's your choice, and you'll die as the wages of sin. But I'm giving you an option out. You can either stay red or turn white. You can either have scarlet, crimson, or white like snow or wool. That's your choice. But if you're willing and obedient. Basically, God's solution to the sin problem is paraphrased this way. Let's start fresh. Let's start all over again. Since Jesus lived the life you haven't lived and died the death you should have died, I'll wipe your slate clean. You give me your record of wrongs and I'll give you a blank piece of paper. Okay, you give me a whole tarnished thing full of all kinds of stuff and I'll give you this white clean piece back. Let's just start all over. The old man is dead, the new man is alive. And I tell you, what, by the way, the fancy term for everything we've just talked about is justification justification. On the books of record, you are counted as though you are righteous because you've come to Christ and his righteousness covers you. Beautiful thought. And I know that there are Christians in far and wide who love that idea, as they should. But that's just half of our message tonight. That's the pardon part. But Christ offers you more than pardon. He doesn't want to just keep forgiving and keep forgiving, and keep forgiving, he actually wants you to overcome. He wants you to have victory in Jesus. He offers not only pardon from sin of your past, but he also gives you power for the future. Because I know there's a lot of people think, well, all right, I'll just come to Jesus, and I'll give him all my stuff. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking that robe. And now I'm going to go on, and pretty much I've always got this guy in the bank, so I can do whatever I want, and I'll just keep dumping stuff on him. He's like, no, 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 slow down. I don't want you to... Again, this comes into cheap grace. It's like it is not cheap. It's extraordinarily expensive. I want you to value it and treasure it and walk in a new life, not just that old life again and again and again. Notice this now. So that brings us to problem number two, our future. Okay, so now what? We start clean with Jesus? Fantastic. And is attempting to have the altar call right now. Who wants to start clean with you? Everybody wants a clean slate. But now the question is, are you willing to be obedient? Are you willing to continue in that grace and grow in Christ, or do you just want a way to get out of trouble every time you know you're going to keep messing up, right? Are you looking for a transaction that gets you into heaven, or are you genuinely seeking a transformation that will fit you into heaven? That's a big difference, friends. It's a big difference. John chapter 14, page 1042. John chapter 14, page 1042. We're going to start with verse 1. Jesus says this. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. You know, the same thing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm his representative. I'm telling you the truth here, all right? In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, there's a fun theological thing we could tell. Notice that the mansions are already there. He didn't say in my father's house will be many mansions. He said they're already there. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I prepare a way for you to come to those mansions, right? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He said, look, I don't want to just come down here and show you what God is like and disappear. I want my end goal is for you, though you're living this world of sin, to come here and live with me, that where I am, you may be also. Now, every one of us, and I hope we, we, we agree with this, that sounds like good news, right? It sounds wonderful. People say, amen. You say, oh, great, we're going to go to heaven. But let's flip the script a little bit. What does that promise look like from heaven's perspective? The angels who knew Lucifer before he sinned and watched this whole sin problem develop and then the casting out and then watched what he did to Jesus himself. And Jesus says, look, guys, I know you understand why Satan should die. They're like, yes, we... It was sad, it was awful, it was a horrible war. We're just glad that now we understand it all. You have our complete agreement. He should die. And you can imagine God saying, good, thank you. Now, beyond just killing him, I want to bring back some of his followers and bring them here. And in fact, Gabriel, I'm going to take... Boy, it's so tempting to call out a name, but I'll just use my own. I'm going to take Cameron DeVazure... And I'm going to put him in the mansion. You know the vacant one that was made vacant when the angels left? It's been vacant for a while now, but I'm going to put him in the mansion right next to you. <clears throat> I'm guessing Gabriel's like, slow down. Um, hmm. Let's think about this logically, Lord. And God says, okay, come, let us reason together. Just think it through. These are sinners you're talking about, right? Yes. Yes, 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 they are. And you're going to bring them back here. Yes, I am. Forgive me. I don't see how that works. Won't they just mess it up all over again? Won't we have another war? Right? And then we go to Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9, page 906 in your pew Bible. We've seen this text before, but think about it in the light of our study tonight. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 6. I mean, sorry, 1 and verse 9. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. The Lord asks this rhetorical question. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up. What? A second time. And they're saying, I don't get it. How are you going to bring sinners who are followers of Satan, put them back here, and yet guarantee that no one will ever sin again? We don't get it. So, just like Christ does with every other thing, he offers evidence so you can see for yourself that his wisdom makes sense. By the way, Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go there. This sets the framework for Ephesians chapter 3. As we're coming close to our ending here, but Ephesians chapter 3. 
It's one of these fascinating texts that I, I just I really, really like a lot. Of course, you like all the texts in the Bible, and I don't ever want to say I have a favorite because then I'll find another text, and that's going to be your favorite. I like it all. But Ephesians chapter 3 gives us some fascinating insight into the plan of salvation. Now, we'll start with verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and thus I'm going to take it slowly because it's the Apostle Paul who's writing, okay? He has these long sentences and puts a lot of ideas in there, but let's break it down. Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 8. To me, who am the least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Okay, so he says, I'm no better than anybody. In fact, I'm the worst of them all. But the Lord has given me this grace. He's given me this commission. Here's my job description. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Right? Now, if we were to say, what is Paul's job description? Oh, he was the preacher to the Gentiles. And he says, yes, that's part of it, but there's more. Comma. So we go now to verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. What is this mystery? Which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Notice there, by the way, he created all things through Jesus Christ. Right? But apparently the same God who created the world through Jesus Christ had some wisdom, some mystery, some insight, some knowledge, a plan, if you will, that has been hidden. Okay, now what is that? Verse 10, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, of course, manifold means simply a combination of lots of things, a very complex thing, right? A manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay, let's break these prepositional phrases down. God has some wisdom that he wants to make known to whom? Look carefully at the text. Who does he want to make this wisdom known to? The principalities and powers. And where are those principalities and powers? In the heavenly places. Well, where does God live? In the heavenly places. With them, right? Now, my, my mind thinks that this is Gabriel, the angels. These are, you know, those sons of God who come to the meetings, those heavenly beings, Right? And God wants to make something known, something about his wisdom known to them. And he lives right there where they live. Now, why couldn't he just turn to them and explain, here's my plan? Because apparently some things take more than simply an explanation. It takes a demonstration of the wisdom. Okay? For instance, what's the question on the angel's mind? How can you bring them here? And it be okay. And God could say, trust me. Don't worry about it. Trust me. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. Don't worry so much. Let not your heart be troubled. It's going to be okay. But he doesn't do that. He gives evidence. And so instead of just turning to them and saying, trust me, it's going to be fine, he teaches them his wisdom by what method? Now look again at the text. He teaches them this wisdom by what agency? By the church, God's people on the earth. Okay, notice this now. So we put the pieces together. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
Apparently, Christ is like, no, 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 no. It's going to be fine. Let me show you in the church that they're going to be safe to save. That we're not going to bring them home and they're going to mess it up for everybody else again. I said, Lord, we trust you, but we need to see it. In the same, reason, the same way that they needed to see a reason that Satan should die, now they're looking for a reason that sinners should live. Right? Lord, we need to see his character on full display so we understand why his death makes sense. Okay, good. Now you've shown it to us. Now I want to bring some of them back here. Okay, Lord, now you need to show us some more evidence. How are they going to be safe and not ruin it for everybody else? He's like, just keep watching the church. Watch what I'm going to do with them. You're right, they can't be trusted, but I'm going to change them into trustworthy people. Okay? Thus we go to Ephesians chapter 6. Just a couple chapters over in the same book, thinking along the same lines, notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Notice he never says, you know, pull yourself up from the bootstraps. Friends, you can't. If you try to step out against the devil, you will lose every time. Okay? But he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Apparently, there is still power in the blood. It's not weak. It's not watered down. It's not diluted. It's just full strength power. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of whom? Notice it's not just that Christ can stand against them and you get to call his victory yours. No, no, he's like, now I want that victory that I have to be your victory. That you can stand against the devil in the same way that I stood against the devil. Be strong in the Lord. You can't do it, but in the Lord you can do all things. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and this time, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice there's good angels and there's bad ones. There's demons and there's... He's like, you're standing against spiritual things, and if you try to stand out on your own, you're going to lose. But you can be strong in the Lord. There is power in Christ. That you may be able to watch this, therefore... Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He can try to come against you and he can try to accuse you and discourage you and distract you and dissuade you and tempt you and do all that he can. But if you stay in Christ, you can have victory. This idea of Christian victory is not an elusive daydream. It is possible, but only in Jesus Christ. Continuing on, let's go to 1 Corinthians. Look at some of these passages. This is going to be page 1105. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These powerful promises of victory. Friends, we've been a victim before, but Jesus Christ is a victor, and he wants us to have that victory in him, in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. Look at the clearness of this text. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Okay, you're not fighting anything more than anybody else is. Okay? But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of what? Escape, that you may be able to bear it. He's like, when, notice that you will be tempted. 
As soon as you make a stand for Christ, Satan's like, all right, let's see how good this commitment is. You think your mister's going to heaven? Mm-mm. And he starts laying a trap for you. Temptation, temptation. And he's going to press hard and he's going to press hard. But the Bible says that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you don't stand in your own strength. You surrender to Christ and say, Christ, I gave you my old life. Now I need to give you my new life. The only life I have is in you. And in that power, you can be victorious according to Scripture. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, page 1189. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to go to verse 20. Notice it says here, For our citizenship is, and that's present tense, where? In heaven. When you come to Christ, he accounts you as a citizen of heaven. You have a place there because of Christ. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if you sign up under me, if you put surrender to me, one of those slots in a mansion, there is a place for you in heaven. Your citizenship currently, present tense, is in heaven. From which we, we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ is there in heaven, but our citizenship is there already. On paper, we're there. We're just not there in person yet. Now notice what Christ is going to do when he returns. Verse 21 who will transform our lowly, what? Body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Notice the thing that we get when Jesus returns is a new body. Praise the Lord. These bodies that run down and age and wrinkle and have all kinds of joint problems and diseases and ends up in death, Say, someday we're going to need a new body that doesn't die. It just continues to maintain forever. Fantastic. We get a new body. But you know what we don't get? Is a new character. Because character cannot be given. Character cannot be given. It's developed in this life that you're living right now as you step by step, day by day, choice by choice, walk with Christ. And I know there's, I've even had this picture in my head, oh, don't worry, yeah, I I still love sin, I love the bad things and everything, but don't worry, I'm going to change on the way up. Right? But Christ isn't going to change your tastes without your consent. He says, if you're willing and obedient... Do you ever think about this? Jesus is going to be in heaven, and God, man, when I was younger, my, my, my mom would ask me this question. It would bug the daylights out of me. I hated this question because she was right. Oh, it's awful that she's right and I'm wrong and I hate it. She would say, if I, if I was into something that was no good, I knew I was doing something wrong, she would ask me, now, Cameron, could you do that if Jesus were here with you? Of course I can't do that. He would ruin all my fun, right? Right? Now think about the wisdom of this. Jesus is going to be in heaven. And God's law is going to be the standard of life in that society of angels. If we don't like the things of God now, he's not going to force you to like him then. Because by the way, if you force someone to like him, it's not them liking it, right? 
So yeah, he can give you a new body. A body is just pieces and parts. It's dust of the ground. You know what? No big deal. But a new character, that's up to you. He says, I'm offering you a clean slate. I'm offering to forgive everything in your past. And the future, through my strength, is just as clean as your past. But the question is, are you willing? Ever think about this? Even if Christ were to let you into heaven, would you even want to go? Or are we more comfortable here? If we're in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. And think about it. Are the things that you like, are the things that you do, are the things that you're most drawn to here, are they going to even be available to do up there? And if not, we need to seriously reevaluate. Have I just been looking at Jesus as my ticket to get in? A transaction? Or do I really want Christ to transform me so that I fit into the society of heaven? It's a much bigger question. Friends, I believe that our conception of salvation is far too small. You'd be like, hey, I'm in trouble and he's throwing me a lifeline. I'm going to get in. Woohoo! But no one's going to get in unless they truly want to fit in from their inmost souls. And that's what Christ offers. Both pardon, yes, for the past, but also power so that you can live the life he wants you to live in the future. Two texts as we close. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Second to last chapter in all the Bible. Looking forward to that new heaven and the new earth which Jesus will someday establish for us. And notice what it says in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I think far too many of us want the sonship of God and the brotherhood of Jesus Christ, but have really no interest in overcoming in the power that he offers us. We need a bigger conception of the plan of salvation. He doesn't want to save us in our sins. He wants to save us from our sins. And that's a big difference. And you might see sitting there, but I can't do it. I simply can't. And I would say to you, you're right. And I'm not going to end with that. I'm going to give you some hope. But, right? Left up to your own, each one of us is doomed. But in Christ, there's power for victory. Notice Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, page 1129 in your pew Bible. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing. Where should we find our confidence? Friends, it's not in yourself. Well, I don't, I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest, but let me tell you something. This concept of just be yourself, follow your heart, it's ridiculous. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's deceitful above all things. The Bible never says just be yourself. It says, no, no, no. Get rid of your old self. Be the new person you're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. Don't be a tweaked up, remodeled version of you. Get rid of the old self. Die and live in Jesus Christ. Being confident of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Complete it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice the burden of victory is not on you, but it's on God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, He who began the good work will finish it. Friends, the Lord has already begun and work in you. You're here. But He wants to finish it. He doesn't want you to start it and claim victory. All right. No, 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 no. That's great. Now let's keep going. Let's keep walking. How long do I have to walk? As long as you live. Until the day of Jesus Christ. Until he returns. Remember, brother, now you are the children of God, and yet it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Right now you can be a child of God. You can be called good in the books of heaven. Fantastic. But God wants more than merely to call you good. He wants to actually make you good and transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Notice as we conclude, God isn't satisfied merely calling you good. He actually wants to make you good. God's plan of salvation is more than a mere transaction to get you into heaven. It's an entire character transformation that will fit you for the society of heaven. Friends, I'm going to make an appeal tonight. And I'm not asking you to get baptized. I'm not asking you to do anything. But I do want to ask you this. If Christ were to come and offer you all that he offers you, which is both pardon and power, if he were to offer to take you to heaven, would you even want to go? Would you even want what he offers? Too many people want the first part. Lord, clean up my record. Make me good on paper and leave me alone in person. No, no, no. He says, I want you good on paper and I want you good in person. I want to actually change you into the image of my son. We're going to sing a closing hymn tonight. We're going to sing a hymn. And what I'd like you to do is just very simply, if you would like to make that commitment to Jesus Christ, you might have made it a thousand times, but if you want to recommit to Jesus Christ, that's praise the Lord. I'd like us to stand as we sing this song. I'm guessing that many of us here want to have that commitment to Jesus Christ. And as we sing our closing song, which will be number... 279. 279 in your hymnals. Only trust Him. Only trust Him. Don't trust yourself, only trust Him. But if that's the commitment you want to make, and it might be a recommitment, but you want to stand and affirm that, I'd like you to stand as we sing this song, Only Trust Him. Hymn number 279. 279, Only Trust Him. If that's your commitment, I want you to stand. Now, as we're singing, if this is the first time you've ever made that commitment or you've been away so long it might as well be the first time, let's be honest, and you want a little extra prayer, you want some counsel, you want to have some people give you a little extra prayer cover and you say, Lord, I want to recommit publicly. I want you to come down front, okay? Everybody standing is for recommitment, but if you want to commit for the very first time or maybe it feels like the first time because it's been so long. You want to come and make that commitment fresh to the Lord tonight. I want to invite you to come down front. Let's sing that hymn, Only Trust Him. Come every soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely by trusting in his word only trust him only trust him only trust him now he will save you he will save you he will
shed his precious blood, rich blessings to bestow. Plunge now into the crimson flood that washes white as Trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you, He will save you now. Yes, Jesus is the truth, the way that leads you into Trust him, only trust him now. He will save you, he will save you, he will save you now. Last stanza, if there's anyone who's willing, you don't have to, and if only one comes, praise the Lord. But if there's a burden on your heart, I would just ask that you surrender to Jesus and reevaluate, Lord, I want to commit. Come then and join this holy band and on to glory go to dwell in that celestial land where joys immortal flow. Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you, He will save you now. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for even creating us at all. You certainly didn't have to do that. In my word, you didn't have to send your only Son to die for us. But you did those things and Lord, we're yours twice over. Help us to not take that for granted. Lord, give us your pardon. Each one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need to start new with you, and I praise the Lord for the recommitments in this room. But Lord, I also know that you have those who want to commit to you for the very first time, and Satan is working, struggling hard. So Lord, I ask that you would give them victory. I ask that you would come into their hearts and whatever objection, whatever temptation, whatever confusion might be there, that you would send the Spirit, the Spirit of truth and help them to see the, the gravity and the significance of it all very clearly. And they may choose to serve you and commit their lives, not just for a moment, but Lord, for a lifetime of transformation into the glory of God. Lord, to that end, I ask that you keep us all faithful. Help us to never settle for cheap grace when you offer a very, very, very expensive grace completely for free. Lord, help us to that end to remain steadfast, faithful to you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.